You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Thank you for joining us today. This is part two of our conversation on climate security with Mark Nevitt, a former Navy commander who is currently on the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania Law School as a Sharswood Fellow. Mark is a former U.S. Navy aviator and a JAG, or Judge Advocate General, who is posted in Norfolk, Virginia as a DOD Regional Environmental Counsel. If you'd like to hear part one of our conversation with Mark Nevitt, please go back and listen to last week's episode. So can we drill down and find out a little bit more about DOD's current position on how to address climate change? Sure. So um, it's really unclear if there is an official position on climate change within DOD. Obviously, there's a lot of movement at the top in the DOD with uh, there was Secretary Mattis and Acting Secretary uh, Shanahan, and we're still waiting for um, a full-time non-acting DOD secretary. Uh, Mattis was pretty upfront in his um, hearings that he viewed climate change as a security risk, and he was pretty upfront as a former military officer in addressing this. What we have seen is that the intelligence community has been pretty forward-looking. Um, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence have been upfront in their recent reports. Just recently in February, they had a report that had climate change uh, front and central center as a national security risk. But unfortunately, climate change was omitted from the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, two sort of top executive branch documents that were signed by the president and, and Secretary Mattis, um, respectively. But I also think that's not it's important not to read too much into this. Um, existing regulations that were passed in prior administrations still are on the books. They have not been formally rescinded. And as I mentioned before, there's been some action on climate legislation via the National Defense Authorization Act addressing uh, unique military vulnerabilities and um, sort of military zoning floodplains management where the military can't um, build in certain areas that are vulnerable to uh, climate change. Um, I think think it's important for your listeners to realize or frame it as, you know, it's really a scientific issue, a scientific problem that demands a political and legal solution, not the other way around. The politics get up front and center. Um, And so follow the science and where the science is going. And I think that's where um, the military leaders are are focused on right now. So um, while we're on the topic of DODs thinking around these kinds of issues, can you tell us like what the pros and cons are of conceptualizing climate change as a national security issue? I think that in the past administration, there was it was it was pretty radical to start thinking about it in this way. I think you know people recognized it, but to put it in a framework that said we're going to talk about environmental issues as national security that was kind of revolutionary at the time. Um, Hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, right. It's like such common sense and science. But yeah, but it hasn't. You know, it 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 took a minute to get into that framework. So can we talk about like the pros and cons of of making that? Uh, sort of like putting that stamp on it? Sure. No. Um, and people should ask questions about, is this a, you know, it's a resources question, it's a priorities question. And um, and it's, it's controversial. And some people, you know, were excited about that framework. And some people thought it was dragging 
unrelated issues into something that is supposed to be nonpartisan. Right. And so I think um, what we're seeing in part is there may be two communities, the environmental community and the national security community. And historically, they've been a little bit, you know, not in conversation with each other as much as uh, we would like. There might be some concern about, quote unquote, the militarization of climate change. But I really think that concern can be alleviated or mitigated over time once there's trust built up and once the environmental community understands the security threats and the military and national security communities are increasingly in dialogue uh, with the environmental community. So I don't know, I think the cons, there's sort of like a, a militarization piece that's in the background, but I think that can be overcome as you start focusing on the real impacts of climate change. So I think the more dialogue, the better. Um, the pros, I think, are many. Um, the military is a validator. It's largely apolitical, and it's a very well-respected institution. That when the military and intelligence communities are saying, we need to look at this, you know, not from a, um, a political perspective, that gets people's attention. It's very pragmatic, and the military has a planning culture. And I think climate change just fits within that model. It's going to change the world. It's going to change the physical environment. We just don't know to what extent, and the military needs to be prepared for um, the unknowns. Um, and of course, the military is heavily resourced. It's um, the largest employer in the world. So there could be some positive externalities, particularly in, in um, renewable energy investment and climate resilient investment. Just look at the history of the military's involvement in the space race and other examples of nanotechnology and the internet with the military was kind of leading the technology and there's all these positive spinoffs. So I, I remain optimistic that we can, we being the military can have a, uh, an innovative role in this space. Um, as far as advice at that, I think that we just need to approach the problem through an interdisciplinary lens. So it's, it's got something for everything, everyone, climate change, law, science, uh, economics, policymakers, and so national security professionals and national security lawyers, I think, have a really important role to play um, in that discussion. It can't be just outsourced to everyone else. National security lawyers and policymakers have a really important role there. In an ideal world, what would you like to see uh, American leadership do uh, on climate change? So I think, as I referenced earlier, um, American leadership, Nicole, is fundamental to this issue. And I should say that on the international front, people are looking to the United States, I think, to take um, action and have a leadership role, which we've been a little bit absent on that world stage in the last year or two. I think we also have a special responsibility. After all, climate change is not just caused by, it's a global problem. And the U.S. emissions, historically, uh, we're the world's largest historical emitter. Today, year by year, we're the second um, largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China. So I think we have a special responsibility in, in playing this leadership role. So I think that fundamentally, we need to first get back into the Paris Agreement. That would be a nice starting point and just follow through in our commitments. Remember that those negotiations were very, very intense. And a lot of the climate negotiations were set in place so that um, the United States could uh, could sign it. President Obama could sign that without going to the Senate for advice and consent. So the Paris Agreement was um, a critical starting place to, to get us on the right path. We need to continue to capitalize on an innovative economy and academic institutions and continue to invest in renewable energy. And again, I think the national security role, the, the military has a role in, in this as an engine for change. 
I think that states and cities in the absence of climate action are taking um, a lot of action on this. So I think there's a lot that the United States is, from a federal level can learn from uh, New York, which has passed a very forward-looking climate legislation last week, um, and cities which are very much taking the lead in the, in the absence of the federal government. Well, I just want to, you know, present the counter-argument, right? You said we're the number two admitter after China, and the antagonist of the climate, the Paris uh, Climate Change Agreement, would say, well, we shouldn't be kneecapping ourselves if the biggest emitter, China, is not willing to play ball. One and two, I think the second part of that, right, was um, not only that we can't bring them to their knees unless we hold them to certain standards, and they weren't willing to, they weren't willing to come along for the ride. Um, so that was, I think, part of it. But the second was that there was a, a statement by this administration that it may be true that we would be economically disadvantaged if we adhere to the rules. And that's a legitimate concern. And some definitions of critical infrastructure and national security include, of course, our economy. Mm-hmm. Right. A and fear- by the way, that's devil's advocate. You're talking to a bike commuter. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I not ride around in a car. But. No, no I, I, and that gets to, the, the again, the super wicked problem nature, right? The United States is not the only emitter. It's not a pure domestic issue. Um, you know, China, we do need to have transparency. And the Paris Accord, the Paris Agreement, which built on the United Nations Framework Commission on Climate Change, did, did just that. So everyone was going to report their emissions, and there was going to be um, sort of just a, a taking stock every certain number of years. And those emissions would be audited by the international community. And so there really was not much wiggle room to sort of fudge your numbers. You know, China is part of the Paris Agreement as, as we talk here. The United States is not. So, so China is looking at the United States and we're looking at China. The reality is that it's a global problem. We've, we've done this before in other areas. Uh, the Montreal Protocol, which is a good example of the world coming together to reduce the ozone emissions to uh, to safeguard the ozone. Um, which, by the way, had results. Which had results. Measurable scientific results. Exactly. So we have a playbook in, in hand right. uh, to, to use this. And, you know, the Framework Convention on Climate Change was passed right in the aftermath of Montreal Protocol in 92. Um, so there's a lot of hope that we would come together, what, which we were hoping to do over time. Um, just right now, we're, we're, a bit, we're a bit stalled, but climate change is happening and it's accelerating, so we need to take action. Well, I would just say, I think the cynical, the cynic would look at <laughs> China and say that, you know, they're obviously going to cheat or they're just, you know, doing it in a way that makes us look bad. You know, what are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do? Right, well, they're still our intellectual property. Who knows what they'll do right. next? That right. type of attitude. Exactly. Right. right. No, I, I think that, again, the Paris Agreement, we, we, we it was sort of, we didn't even get off the, the starting blocks in this country. So there was a pretty good um, framework so that nations could determine their nationally determined contributions, report that to the international community, but not even given that a chance. And so I was hopeful that the Paris Agreement would sort of be the sort of 1.0 to get us out of this crisis. Um, but right now we're just we're stuck in the starting block. All right. Well, let's shift gears and let's <laughs> let's drill down on a, on a particular specific topic that we've talked about before, but I think is is one that we can't ignore. Um, and and so we often hear about the Arctic as a region that is especially vulnerable to climate change. It also is uh, an area where there is the largest reserves of oil 
um, and fossil fuels beneath the surface. So uh, why don't you give us your perspective on the Arctic from an environmental angle and some of the challenges of legal governance in the Arctic? Sure. So Arctic is a great sort of case to look at where, um, you know, you're seeing climate changes effects quite pronounced. And what I should say is what is happening in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. So you may think, oh, it's up there, it's Santa Claus, it's the North Pole. But, <laughs> um, you know, because of, of sea ice melting or really um, ice melting from land masses, Greenland, Russia, and Canada predominantly, um, that can impact global sea level rise. The Arctic, of course, is fundamentally an ocean surrounded uh, by land. But climate change, as you mentioned, is opening uh, sea routes, their Northwest Passage through Canada. You're seeing vessels traffic through that's bypassing the, the Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. And also... Chinese buying icebreakers. You're right. There's Lots more... Lots of icebreakers. Exactly. And China has declared themselves, themselves a near-Arctic nation. They have a lot to gain, I think, from the opening of uh, the CI, the, uh, these new transit routes. And, and what you said exactly is correct, Elisa. Um, there's renewed interest in natural resource extraction. Uh, there's significant oil and natural gas resources uh, in the Arctic. From a governance perspective, so and of course, environmentally, it's a very harsh place. It's very cold, obviously. It's a very difficult place to operate if you have some kind of environmental spill from new um, shipping in the area. Who's going to clean that up? And so the Arctic Council is sort of the main governance structure, which is composed of the eight Arctic states, if you will. Um, so China's not part of that Arctic Council. There's eight. But they show up, right? They sit there. They, they sit come there. come to the meetings. There they are. Here's <laughs> China. China's there, absolutely. And uh, they're very interested. They're, they have what's called observer status within the Arctic um, Council. Mm. But they're not a card-carrying member of Arctic Council. So it's a different model from Antarctica, which I've written a little bit about, which is a kind of a hard law treaty system, which is also... Um, feeling the effects of climate change. Maybe that's a different podcast. Um, <laughs> but, but the eight Arctic states are Denmark, via Greenland, which is fascinating to me as Greenland is actually literally melting before our eyes, um, Russia, United States, uh, Canada, uh, Norway, Finland, Iceland, and, and Sweden. The United States, I think for your listeners to really realize we're in the United States, United States is an Arctic nation, right? We don't think ourselves of you know, Alaska, but it's a huge continental shelf, which is um, the seabed that comes from the Alaska, the Alaska coastline um, into the Arctic Circle itself. And there's huge oil and gas resources there. So the Arctic Council has served as sort of the central forum for a lot of these issues as climate change is impacting that area. Um, and I'm happy to get into those now. Um, I will say that four of the five Arctic coastal states, when I say Arctic coastal states, I mean states that actually have a continental shelf within the Arctic Circle. Finland, Iceland, and Sweden do not. They are, four of the five are uh, NATO members. Uh, the one that's not, of course, is Russia. Friendlies. So they're friendlies, <laughs> They're friendlies, right? exactly. <laughs> exactly. And sort of the, the Achilles heel of Elisa and Yvette and Nicole is that the Arctic Council, it may not be an Achilles heel, it's just something that we need to keep abreast of, the Arctic Council specifically um, in its charter cannot address matters of military security. So it's kind of put off to the side. So, Which is kind of a big bucket to not be able to address. It is kind of. So you're left to sort of the traditional allies, uh, NATO and Russia. And NATO did its largest, I think, Arctic exercise in the fall of 2018 
uh, in the Arctic Circle um, in quite some time, when the aircraft carrier was actually up in the Arctic Circle. NATO did. NATO did, exactly. So when um, they were probably sailing past the Russian flag and the Norwegian flag and whatever else is staked up there, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Of course, famously, Russia staked their flag at the North Pole in 2007, and we sort of laughed, but that was sort of the beginning of... Uh, yeah, we stopped know. laughing. <laughs> <laughs> We're not laughing now. We're not laughing now. Exactly. Not funny anymore. Like how, so many things. And how worried should we be about uh, Russia's ambitions and also China's interest in the Arctic? Well, I think we should be concerned, and I think that the I would frame it as we need to be actively engaged. Uh, remember that we are uh, an Arctic nation. We be the United States. Uh, I was encouraged, I would say, that just last week or two weeks ago, that the Department of Defense just, re- just released a new Arctic strategy. So there's new thought put behind uh, our future ability to operate in that area. Uh, I think we need a coherent interagency Arctic strategy. It can't just be a DOD strategy. It has to be commerce, state. It's a bit ad hoc right now, I think, Nicole, as I would uh, define it. We need to keep working within the Arctic Council, which has been a source of success. There's a, a lot of discussion about militarization in, in the Arctic, and of course Russia is building quite a few military bases in the Arctic. But the Arctic Council has been a source of, of comity and a source of progress in, around environmental issues and operational issues. Um, and those develop relationships that could spill over into things like Paris climate discussions or anything further. I mean, it's so important to... Nurture those relationships, and this is a nice vehicle to start. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we saw the Arctic Council, you know, Russia and and the the Arctic Council nations, the United States signs um, agreements about search and rescue, about about oil spill and response. They'll they'll help each other out. That occurs. So you're seeing, you know, a nice um, uh, progress in that area. Um, We don't really have a great capacity to operate in the Arctic. We being the U.S. Military, we have a couple icebreakers, only one full-size icebreaker, but Congress has started to appropriate more icebreakers. I will say Russia, I think, has 30 to 40, depending on how you count that. Some of them are nuclear-powered icebreakers, and so their capacity to operate in the Arctic um, is just much greater than the United States. So can we just, uh, for, for the uninitiated, what, what is the significance of having an icebreaker? What's the benefit? Because it sounds, maybe people might be listening as they're going to tear up the ice. It's already melting. Why on earth would you do that? And... So, so an icebreaker has a lot of different uh, functions. For one, um, it can uh, facilitate access to other non-icebreakers, right? It can sort of facilitate uh, shipping and sort of create a carve-out, a, a route in the ice. It can also serve as a um, someone's in distress. An icebreaker can sort of get that person or get that uh shipping vessel and, and that's in distress. Disaster response. If there's something up there awful, exactly. a little bit closer to where you need to be to address it. So I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's, it's great. It's a great question. Um, I guess, but fundamentally for your listener, they re- you, you really need icebreaker capacity, despite the fact that, you know, sea um, ice is melting and we're seeing less and less sea ice, particularly in the summer months, usually around September or August, I look and see what the Arctic sea ice is, is. And it's historically has gone down. It's just plummeted uh, when we look at maps of sea ice in the Arctic. Um, of course, China has an Arctic strategy. They've declared themselves to be a near-Arctic nation. And they're very interested in the shipping lanes that are emerging there. What does near-Arctic nation mean? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> so that, I was at a forum just a year ago and we, when 
China first announced this, and we were thinking, asking the same exact question, Yvette. I guess it's more of a pronouncement of they're looking at valuing the Arctic in a, area in a way that um, they haven't in the past. They would love to be an Arctic Council member, I think, a full card-carrying member, but they're, they're not quite there. I will say this for your listeners may be really interested in this. One of the issues that is in the Arctic is that the United States is not a party to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. Of course, the United States abides by all the navigational provisions as customary international law. What we've seen under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea is that um, you want to take advantage of the Continental Shelf Commission to make a claim on the Continental Shelf. And the United States has not submitted uh, a claim, or I should say a submission to the Continental Shelf Commission off the coast of Alaska. The other four Arctic coastal states have. So it's an, another example, I think, of, of the United States really needs to be a member of the UN Convention on Law of the Sea. I remember dealing with this in law school some years ago. I'm not going to say exactly how many and how thorny issue it was then. And it is very distressing to find that we are still at you know, some sort of logjam when it comes to figuring out what we're going to do with respect to the Convention on the Law of the Sea. And it's amazing to me that the business community, the military community, the environmental community are all in favor of it. It's just that pesky Senate, right? You know, I mean, interesting point, because I think one of the things that's, that's been great about hearing you talk about this is I can't imagine a state that wouldn't be affected. So no matter who your constituents are, no matter what they think, I mean, you have to be kind of realistic. We're talking about potential mass migration. Obviously, there'll be some impact on the food supply. Military readiness. I mean, unless you have some specific ideology where you don't think the military should be ready, right. this should be a concern. Um, and so I do find it interesting that this has been turned into a political football when really it should never be. Right. The question is, do you think the military should be ready? Yes. Okay. <laughs> the military, to be ready, we need to start preparing for, for climate change. And I think we are, we need to accelerate that. We need to build upon the work we've already done and, you know, read the science. Uh, it, it's, it's coming. It's already here, actually. Wow. Okay. So this has been a fascinating conversation, quite frankly, one of my favorite topics. Um, However dystopic uh, the images of the world in the future may be when we discuss it. Uh, we're going to have some links to the things that you've written in our uh, show notes. Um, and why don't you tell us, before we say goodbye today, what can listeners look forward to seeing in those uh, hyperlinked items? Sure. I, you know, I want to encourage, if I could task your listeners with a homework assignment, which I know I can't, but... <laughs> oh, I'm you still, can. Like, <laughs> they're free to ignore it, but Please. you can certainly do it. Do try, Professor. But, <laughs> but honestly, Yvette, honestly, Yvette, I think that, you know, I'll get on my, my soapbox for a second, then you'll knock me off. But, you know, people need to have a working knowledge of the Constitution. I also think people need to have a working knowledge of the climate science. And so the National Climate Assessment, which reflects the best climate science coming out of the U.S. government, is a wonderful summary for policymakers. It's only about 15 pages. If you read that um, summary for policymakers that I'll hyperlink on the show notes, um, you'll know more about climate science than 99% of the American people. It'll take about half an hour of your, of your time. And you'll realize, I think, just how... Um, interdisciplinary and how important this this issue is. Um, there's tons of other um, research on this matter. Um, David Wallace Wells is The Uninhabitable Earth, which is some light dystopic uh, summer reading. Um, <laughs> you know, but but just sort of being engaged with the science will make you a better, I think, I think citizen. Um, 
I'll link the Brown University Pentagon fuel use, climate change, and the cost of war report. The DOD climate adaptation roadmap is still uh, good. That was passed during the Obama administration. I have some blog posts, which I'm happy to share, which I wrote on just security uh, and lawfare. And people should check out the work at climatesecurity.org, which is sort of a climate security think tank in D.C. They do really good work on this issue, and uh, we maybe hyperlink to their, um, their website. Wow. Well, thank you so much for giving us a jumping off point just with the content in the podcast and for giving us some follow-up reading. Uh, and thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security for the American Bar Association. You can read more about today's podcast and access our archive of episodes at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And you can read the notes of this podcast that we were just talking about. So be sure to subscribe. Click on that button that says subscribe and rate <laughs> us on your favorite podcast app and engage us in conversation on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We look forward to seeing you again next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.